Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Dance Party. You No, it's the AB Testing Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And this is 144. Yes. Episode 144. Not just a random number, which is a perfect score of 12, by the way. I tend to prefer our prime number podcasts. When's the next one? I don't... um, No. No. 147? 49 might be. How's the... How's the the new gig? Well, it's the same gig with the new boss. My org is growing. I have you know, there's a unannounced reorg coming, so I won't give the details on that. But that'll put my org at about, including open headcount, about 130, 140, somewhere in there. Wow. So my my dog is joining the podcast. Everyone say hi to Tara. Tara, say hello. Hi, Tara. She can't hear you. You're in the ear of my headphones, but she'll, she'll make her wookie sound here in a second. Uh, it's it's going pretty well. I like it. Work's fun. It's just an easy place to do good work, as I've said many times. So, yeah, work is good. How, how are things going on your end? Work is work. We're, we're in a phase where, I don't know. So, right now, there's a high urgency thing uh, ask from the senior VP and it results in me spending a lot of my time building yet another dashboard and as you know uh, that type of work really excites me yep I yeah 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 I um I tried I play the hands when somebody tells me to build a dashboard I play the hands over my ears la 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 can't hear you (laughs) game that works well for me. I'm not sure what, what happens, you know, well for you. Yeah, no. So in this particular case, I actually, so the last time I said yes to this ask, uh, it was a big, massive learning lesson. I told my manager, no, I am not doing this again. Uh, and this time around, I had, uh, I had my staff come in and have them work on it. But one of my peers is uh, going on paternity leave. And one of the things that I do pride myself on is uh, I am good at training up people to be on the bench. And so the person that I had targeted to to basically be the leader for this project uh, that is not me uh, was also on the bench. And so she is now uh, going to be, while he's out on paternity, she is going to be the acting manager of that team, which I think is a fantastic opportunity and experience for her. But it now puts me in the position of, oh, I have to be the IC for the stupid dashboard. Um, <laughs> so yeah. you, you bring up one thing. I was going to push us along to the topic, but... This idea as a leader in building a bench, and it's a term that's not every company uses it, but I've heard it enough to know it's used pretty often. It's this, who is the level of leadership that is going to take over for you when you leave, move on to something else, et cetera. Right. And I've been working a lot on that. I have a fairly junior team where I now have, with a recent promotion, I have one manager within two levels of me right now. And working on getting everyone else where they need to be. Wait, uh, wait, wait. 
You have one manager in an organization of a hundred. No, 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 no. I have one that's within most, most. All of the rest of them are three levels below me, ladder level wise. One is two levels below me. I am trying to grow my org. So right now, there's no one. If I disappear, if I decide I want to go farm clams in Woodby Island, uh, there is no one in my org that can take over for me. As my org is planned to continue to grow throughout this year, I have now one person who can take on a lot more leadership and some that are getting there, but I'm spending a lot of time trying to groom my bench, going back to the term of the bench again, to get more people on my team capable and ready to take on larger, more strategic roles. Yeah, 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 that's good. And, I, and actually, I, I, lied. I, I, keep... I, I forgot, I, there was a reorg, we had a lot of reorgs. Uh, we, I, I actually have two, two of my managers are within two levels of me, but I don't, I don't, I'm not, I, I put it this way. I'm, uh, I do not have a good bench right now. It's on my mind. It's something I work on with my HR business partner as far as planning goes quite a bit to make sure we're, we're moving in that direction. When you say in within two levels of you, do you mean ladder level or do yeah, you mean yeah. hierarchical? Okay. No, I mean ladder levels. Okay, got it, got it. And and those are, I just want to, I'll keep them abstract, but it's, it, you know, similar to Microsoft is a level of scope and responsibility that people typically can cover as they grow through ladder levels. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could solve the problem. I'll just promote them, but they're not all ready to handle the scope of that work. So I'm working on that. Right, right, right. That's, that's one thing that I, I view very seriously with with uh promoting folks um one, one cool anecdote to share i don't want to spend a lot of time mm. talking about but I th- we could actually if i could change the topic we could do a whole podcast on growing your team when i left microsoft and we're gonna have a longer topic on this in a little bit i recall my last several years there as teams began to flatten there were far fewer lead positions than there were people who had been leads or wanted to be leads. It was very difficult to get into a lead position. I don't know if that's still the case or not. No, it's not. It's not in some regards. And and I forget the chronology, but you were, you were there for both events. And one was right when we got, when we, we moved tests to different disciplines. And then there was another where, and not all teams did this, but it was in general with, with within Microsoft, uh, like a general flattening of organizations. Yeah. What I recall, I, and just finish my thought and you go on with yours, but what yeah. I recall is that when that flattening happened, there were a lot of leads who either moved to IP, IC positions or what, remember when there was an opening for a lead position, there would be a hundred applicants. Uh, and just the thought I was going to say is right where I'm at now, I actually have lead positions that I can't get anyone to want to. I would I I am short a few leads on my team across across the organization, and I am going to have to probably internal transfer or hire externally, which is I hate I don't hate doing for a lead. It's difficult to do for a lead, I think, but uh, I have to figure something out because I'm short a couple of leads, and all of my ICs are like, no man, I don't want to be a lead. I love being an IC. But go ahead and continue your chronology story about Microsoft. Well, I was going to say there was a time where we, we kind of flattened the the organization as a whole within Microsoft. Yep, I um, remember. Uh, not all teams did this, but it was still sort of a general practice. And I would say things are sort of naturally kind of 
going back to the way it was, um, it, they're heading back. So, in other words, we probably over over flattened, and and in the in, um, in the dunness of time, things have become a little bit more hierarchical as as things happen. I don't think it's problematic at this point in time. Like back in the day, right, a manager with two directs. Uh, it was super freaking common. Yeah. I don't, um, yeah. It, it's, it's, it happens. It's, but it's not common now. Um, back in the day, someone in the senior band might be a manager, uh, or that was super common. It's not common today, but it does happen. Um, the well, 20, 20 years ago, someone far from senior could be a lead. Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, it's the wild, wild west. All right, so anyway, that's interesting. Grow your bench and find good leads and take care of them because they're good people. I have two topics for the day. One was a cliffhanger from our last episode. If you want to go back and check it out, you can do that. But uh, the story was I was asked to give an AMA at Test Bash Home. Uh, if you are a Ministry of Testing uh, Pro subscriber, you can go watch that recording right now. And the wonderful Tristan uh, asked me questions about the future of test automation. I think they asked me to give this talk knowing I would be at least somewhat controversial. And I came up with three bullet points that we discussed and each designed to it in combination, the three of them together, the Venn was designed to piss off the most possible people. Unfortunately, because the audience was so mature and had actual proper critical thinking, it just made them think about stuff and ask good questions. But the idea was there. So I don't know if I should give you them to you one at a time or go through all three. Maybe I'll do one at a time because knowing you, you'll want to comment and I'll have to reel you back in. So the first one is I've forgotten. No, the first one is uh, in the future, developers will do the vast majority of all test automation. Okay. And I was trying to find in looking, I was trying to see if someone wrote down what these were because I, I just scribbled them on a piece of paper somewhere as test bash was approaching. But I can actually find myself saying this as far back as 2016. So uh, I don't think anything super controversial or, or something you hadn't heard before. Actually, none of these are things you hadn't heard before. So that's number one. Any yeah, worries it, about that? As a prediction, like the only thing I could say that would cause it to fall apart is perhaps underestimating the the strength of test automators white knuckles holding on to the past this is actually my worry because there are leagues and leagues of teams who do are test automation specialists yeah and that's what they do they don't want to do anything else they make their money making so but i think it's right i think it's in and for all the reasons we talk about in modern testing on this podcast it's inefficient once developers write the code, write the tests for the code, they end up writing better design code because they end up writing more testable code. 
All these things happen. Lots of good things happen when developers own test automation. They end up automating a lot of the right things and they do a good job. Yeah, I think actually one of the one of the things that is sort of what's the opposite of a prediction? One of the things that's benefiting the opposite of your prediction is that literally everyone that I have talked to, and, and we even, when we had that conversation um, uh, with those folks a couple of podcasts ago, right? Um, I'm forgetting their name, the, the, the company name at the moment, where, where they're providing test automation services. Yep, reflect.run. Thank you, reflect.run. Um, right. One of the things that is, I think, slowing this down is the fact that not a lot of people uh, are, are still currently aware around around the the current studies and science on this one. No, like of course it, not. No, because they like to just, you know, we live in our bubble. They live in their bubble. Uh, yeah. A, so anyway, I'm not surprising you there, too, but you can imagine. Yeah. You can imagine that would push some buttons. The second one, again, is nothing you picking to reflect.run, uh, nothing you haven't heard before. I think record and playback, low code, whatever you want to call them, tools like reflect.run, uh, Testem, Mabel, etc. They will be the de facto standard for test automation. I think in the future, handcrafted tests in Selenium. Sorry, Jason, I love you, but you're not the future. <laughs> handcrafted tests go away and record and playback comes a de facto for UA automation. There's still actually, you will use Selenium for some special cases when you want to do a special, maybe it's a stress scenario, maybe it's a smart monkey test. There are some things that it will probably do better when you want to handcraft your test. But this idea of armies of, sorry, not armies, this idea of a mass of web tests written in Selenium uh, running against your product is going away. Those two together mean that developers will be using these, they know how to code, which is great. They also know how to be efficient. And I would say in the future, a developer quickly creates a record and playback test for the UI they've done game over. That's, that's the way UI testing is done and the way, te way UI test automation, I'm sorry, is done in the future. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think it's influenced. Um, once business leaders recognize uh, the outcomes that we're recognizing, and I, I think they'll they'll shift over. Right, yep. it, it's essentially what. So what holds it back? Number one, developers don't want to do it. Uh, number two, test. Uh, you know. Uh, um, Small armies of test automation engineers uh, obviously don't want to have their job at risk, right? It, um, number three, business leaders aren't actually really aware of the benefits. So a business leader, once they're aware of the benefits, right, whether it be dev or test, they're both going to kind of, uh, both dev and test and a lot of businesses are going to push back on this. That's that's what's going to slow it down, at least from my experience. You, you need to have leaders that, I don't know, the way I would. Never mind. I'm all right. So let I'm, me go about, I'm blocking my own tangent. So the, the last one, 
contrive this one a little bit because I know one way to trigger a lot of people is bring up the test automation pyramid uh, because I don't know why I, 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 I like to push buttons. And what I said was because of the first two, when do, when we have a world where developers are doing the vast majority of automation and the UI automation is done via record and playback, the benefits from that actually make the test automation distribution just test automation pyramid true in nearly every case. Wait, wait, wait. So, test automation pyramid. Because of one and two, test automation pyramid becomes true? Yes. Where I think a lot of people, this goes back to my comment I've said many times, where people look at the test automation pyramid and they think it's dumb to try and make their tests fit that ratio. And they're right. And my, my viewpoint has always been that the test automation pyramid is a reflection of what happens when you have well-designed code. And I think uh, you'll get more of that as developers own more stuff and have an easy way to do their UA automation. You're going you're gonna to see the pyramid actually happen. And nobody will care. And this is the problem. Right now, people care too much about the pyramid. No, but it's not always right. And sometimes you want the ice cream cone. And sometimes, shut up. Stop no, your so whining. Right. It's a model... All models are wrong. Some are useful. Everything about it makes sense. Just stop getting your arms all caught up there, slim buckety. So let me, I want to, first thing. Uh-oh. When we're talking about, when we're talking about the test automation pyramid. Correct. We're, ta- we're talking about one where there's itty bitty number of, of tests at the UI layer. There's you know, right. way more at the business layer and then way, 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 way more in the unit test layer, right? That's what we're talking about. Right. So if dev owns everything and record and playback is done through the UI, you then think unit tests will become dominant and the UI will be small. I think you're overthinking this, Brent. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to decide if I agree with your thing. And, what, and, what and, I'm, and you're right, I may be overthinking, but uh, obviously what we see, so if, you, if, if record and playback becomes wildly successful because of... Uh, well, let me phrase know? it differently. I think those who argue with the test automation pyramid, uh, most of the stem of their arguments come from the fact that test rather than dev attempts to own the vast majority of test automation. I think if and when developers own automation, regardless of the tool, regardless of that second one, when developers own automation, it is much more apt. And I would say almost guaranteed that the tests fall into a distribution as described by the test pyramid. Yeah. I'm just wondering to what degree the service layer, like I I actually wonder in, in, in your thing, if, if, you know, the quote unquote middle class disappears, because well, if that, it's really that's the easy. Thing. There, there's there's not a the pyramid puts those nice lines between things. It's tests get more granular, less granular, depending on, on where you're going. There's a fuzzy line between things you call unit tests and things you call functional tests and even things you call UI tests or end to end tests. Yeah, the, the 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 only issue is is that I actually see you know UI tests, uh, you know taking over if if it ends up being that easy and and 
you know, fixing shit through through ML supported methods, right, uh, ends up being that easy, then um, I could easily see the, the the business rule automation sort of disappearing. Unit tests thing because of how fast it is and and uh, things along those lines. I kind of I feel like I, I agree with you that 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 would be at the bottom. But I'm I'm wondering if the pyramid becomes a square. I don't think so. I think, and I'll say this again for those who have heard me say this. I think today, due to ownership and the popularity, and nothing again, love you, Jason. Nothing against Selenium. I think the industry has an unhealthy infatuation with UI automation, and I think the in the future that goes away. No, uh, um, explain that in the context of your principle number two. Today, with test owning, writing the UI automation and mm-hmm. loving, loving, loving Selenium and having it being a separate team, often not even connected or talking with the dev team. Agreed. They write thousands and hundreds of thousands of lines of Selenium code to <laughs> execute the UI of their application. It takes a long time. Those tests are can be flaky when selectors change. There's lots of stuff you can do around that to make those more resilient, but still, they are flaky. And it takes a lot of time to build and maintain those tests. I'm saying in the future, it's going to be much more efficient to just record and playback that test. And if the test ever can't handle those tests, are, Ew, that's, again, with the right okay. tools, those Record and playback tests will automatically adapt to changes in your underlying selectors, layout, etc. If okay. it ever gets to a point where your test just the tool can't keep up with the overhaul you made to your website, I think it's still faster just to go re-record that test than it would ever have been to continue to handcraft and maintain those tests over time. I, I now understand where we we where you and I uh, where I was having difficulty. Uh, getting to the same page in your book. And it was essentially, because you talk about UI automation and in all of that discussion, it's synonymous with with handcrafted UI automation, right? To me, recorded playback is still UI automation. It is. I did not mean to imply otherwise. Right, but the value proposition of having a whole team who, whose job it is to spend 50% of their time taking yesterday's flaky tests and turning them into tomorrow's different flaky tests, right? That, that shit goes away. I yeah, completely agree I, I, with I you. think that the tools today are very resilient to, ch- to change in the underlying code. And that's, what's been missing. And again, we came from a world you and yeah. I hear record and playback. We automatically think, Nope, way too flaky for use. The world's changed in the web world. At least stuff got better. Anyway, th- that's it. I do want to get to the other topic today, which I think is going to require some discussion. So that's sort of a recap. I encourage you who are pro members to go to the uh, Ministry of Testing site and check out that talk. It's very, I, I had a good time, uh, lots of good feedback, and I'm surprised given the my attempt at controversy, which kind of failed, but it was still fun. I at least got some people to think, which is always what we strive for in AB testing. And so I try and take that stuff elsewhere. So... Did you get any pushback on, on any of that? Not really. Not really. Uh, there were some tangential questions around, 
well, should testers still learn to code? And of course, I think yes. And I think there's a lot of things they could do that aren't writing test automation. There's lots of tooling and even doing some testing that isn't necessarily driving the UI. Uh, but no real pushback. No real pushback. People, there's stuff like people didn't really believe me. Like, oh yeah, I could see why you'd think that, but that won't work in my world. A lot of the snowflake stuff. We'll yeah, see over time what happens. I could be wrong, but it's a world where I think it's a better world. The future I described is 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 achievable. It's what uh, Stephen Johnson calls the adjacent possible. It's right there. We just need teams to start doing it. And I have found, I also discovered, not just teams I've worked with here at Unity, but I've now found other teams where the development teams are more and more, just like when we first talked about modern testing, teams say, mm-hmm. oh, hey, we're doing that. I am finding development teams who are using record and playback tools for their UI automation. So it's it's happening, just not widespread yet. I think it's going to be big. We had a, a subject change, not really a mailbag question, but um, a good inquisitive question on the Slack channel today. It's something I've been asked before and worth talking about. Uh, if you can recall way back, remember the, te- you don't remember it, but the listeners, our three listeners may remember, uh, we did a podcast once without Brent. I invited, I invited all three to join me in this uh, small room, kind of off behind the seats in the room where we had a test bash Philly in 2016. I was at Microsoft working on uh, Microsoft teams and I gave a talk on testing without testers, sort of the beginning of how I have been working with teams to uh, on quality coaching. And we, t- we have previous podcasts. We're talking about that. We'll rehash a little bit of that, but they asked a very good question. They say, Alan, I'm, I'm going to, I'm gonna, for Regu on Slack, I'm going to summarize this whole thing to something I've heard before. So you're pretty passionate about modern testing and not having dedicated testers and uh, test coaching and you worked on teams. But with all that said, you worked on teams, Microsoft teams and Brent don't say anything, you're yourself in trouble, but they say, but Microsoft teams really, really sucks. So what happened? Is it, did you really, are you, are you not walking the talk or whatever? Again, I'll do most of the talking here, Brent, in case, you know, your boss is ever listening. I, no, I can't no, no, imagine, no, like, so, like, like no, I, I, I'm I, all, honestly, I can't imagine Microsoft, you can't badmouth our product, every single Microsoft product is excellent and you need to tout our awesomeness. No, so there will be no uh, teams bashing for me today. I... I, I do think it has, I mean, it has, it has flaws, but generally, generally a lot of those flaws can be traced. Um, it, it sometimes can be traced back to, to things that I have a very particular interest. There will be none of that today, but as it relates to what the hell, Alan, you, you hypocrite, uh, I'm all aboard on that conversation. Okay. So yeah. let me talk, let me just rehash a little bit. Those who haven't been on the podcast yeah. for a long time. We talked about it when I was there on the podcast. I don't remember numbers back in the 60s or 70s. It's been a while. Uh, not episode numbers, not years. So I joined teams as an individual contributor. To They were very early on. They were about 75 developers, maybe all up at the time, maybe less, maybe 50. I can't quite remember. But they wanted someone to come in and help the team think more about quality. They did not have any dedicated testers. They had some former testers working on infrastructure here and there. 
but they didn't really have anyone helping the team think about testing. And I joined the team and they had a pretty good suite of unit tests in place and some other tests, which weren't very good. They did, as I've described elsewhere, all the testing they knew how to do and they put some effort into it. It wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible. So that's where I started. And I joined the team and I did some stuff kind of like a, a test manager would for the team. I just, I made sure bug tracking was in place and we had some bug metrics, boring, but worth tracking for tech debt. Uh, I did some communication around quality and just kind of set the team up a little bit with the quality culture. Maybe some of my first thinkings, I didn't develop the quality culture guide till a couple years later, but uh, at least stuff that was in my head. Way more years later. Yeah. So one thing I realized there, so I did uh, a couple times, I did a bug bash kind of thing. Let's take, let's take two hours today or half a day today and we'll all do a bunch of testing on the project. And I would, they mostly did it in teams, like small little teams getting together to work on things. And I would roam fairly small team and, and give them ideas and help them. And I, of course, I had been coaching them and giving them ideas on quality, little tidbits here and there before then. And this was the first time I discovered that given the freedom and permission to do so, developers can do very excellent testing, not checking. God. Okay, I'm going to avoid that tangent. They did very (laughs) deep, good testing. They dug in. They found bugs that only the very some of them, some of them just found very surface level things, but uh, a good number of them found bugs that only the best testers I know may have found. Very deep, important bugs. And they just, they looked at how the system fit together and found some flaws that were worth fixing. Definitely your, your P0 type bugs. So that was a revelation. Be like, yes, they actually can do great testing. It wasn't really a revelation. I, I expected it would happen, but it sort of provided some proof. So in the early days, uh, we were trying to get we were trying to get uh, product market fit, trying to prove viability, trying to figure out if we're making something that could be sold. And as typical for many projects at Microsoft, there were several teams at the time originally working on similar things. They wanted something that was sort of compete in that Slack space. Uh, and over time, they, we built in the the conferencing stuff to it, but we we kind of won out among the Microsoft teams, uh, among the Microsoft organizations building communication and collaboration type tools. Uh, mm-hmm. So at that stage, all pretty good. We're still pretty small. Trying to find the right product, we did, and it was working. I Over time, I took over to have the most influence over quality. I took over running all of our infrastructure uh, teams as well as kind of putting on a release manager hat for our beta and I left right after the beta to just have as much control as I could, as I could over what we were releasing quality, understanding, understanding where risk was also in the modern testing world, helping the team get to a stage where they could comfortably release every week and not worry about it's for the, we actually release all the backend services all the time, but the front end once a week and getting a team used to that, that was hard, believe it or not, because they were so used to your typical waterfall ship every year projects. A lot of these folks that they would, even for a once a week release, they try and shove stuff in at the end. I say, look, the next train's coming by. 
And I, I, at the time when I was there, I really wanted to get them to, to continuous delivery on the front end. Right. But we just didn't have, they didn't have the quality culture to do it. I'll talk about why in a minute. Uh, I wanted to get there. I ended up hiring uh, a team in India to help with testing because the develop. I'll, I'll get to the, the crux of this. The developers were too busy doing other stuff to get to, to get to doing the testing they needed to do. And what it came down to was really the culture of the team, which is eventually why I left. Microsoft Teams was, I can say, in my 22 years at Microsoft, hands down the most toxic culture I ever worked in. There was nothing about the customer. It was all about pleasing your boss and pleasing their boss. I had never worked with such a huge group of suck-ups in my life. You know, I, I said earlier, I said it a million times, you know, Unity, it's easy to do good work because the egos don't get in the way. Best ideas win uh, the things you want to see. But at Teams, it was so hard to do good work because if you did the right thing for the customer, doesn't matter. If you it wouldn't matter if it's a, a huge win for the customer, if it wasn't done in a way that sufficiently sucked up to your manager or to their manager, it was guffawed. So we had a program manager, which is a Microsoft lawyer, like a product manager in the rest of the world who was, I remember the time I, I remember the time I knew the end was near. I was in a, we used to call them war room meetings and then became something else. A, a ship room, a ship room meeting. And we had just put the the alpha out or the first beta, some early release before the beta. Maybe it was the beta that went out. I can't remember what the order was. And he had went and, you know, got feedback from some other teams at Microsoft and some customers and came up with a list of things that had to be fixed. In fact, I don't even know if it was customer based. I think it was maybe, might have even been from our VP, but he's like 10 things we got to do. And we have to do these and we have to do them by this date. And he went, he got up a little bit of a soapbox and said, every priority is getting these things done in time for, in time for this, whatever this date was, we'll take shortcuts where we need to. We have to have these done. And I chimed in and said, yeah, but we can't sacrifice quality. We have a good quality release. We can't sacrifice it. And he got mad. He was like, yeah, no, he says quality is one of the shortcuts we'll take to get these done. And at that point, I knew I was in a losing battle because he was fairly new to the org, but he had joined the org because he was a previous suck up of our VP and uh, he had our VP's ear. And once he knew that I was against getting these features done over the favor of quality, it was basically impossible for me to get my job done. So combination of that, my boss calling me at home to ask why I approved something for a release. Uh, just all kinds of micromanaging and toxicity kind of caused me to leave. But I think those things, this prioritization of features over quality, this inability or unwillingness to understand the value that CD brings to quality. After I left, they went to a point where their changes and bugs were so jarring in their big weekly releases that in, like my reaction would be, okay, we should ship, ship, you know, continuous delivery, ship more often, put stuff behind feature flags, get it right. Their immediate reaction was to go ship that front end monthly instead of weekly. And I have told you a thousand times, mm -hmm. I'm sure you agree, I would rather ship a hundred times a day than once a month. 
And I, and I believe those things led to gaps in quality. I could say, um, uh, I can say that from a data perspective, as advanced as you, as you would expect any Microsoft team to be, we could debug. We knew exactly where customers were getting failures and what was going on there. The problem was there were so many failures that we had a hard time prioritizing them sometimes. It wasn't, it wasn't tractable because it was so frequent. That's more into why I left than the quality issues, but I'm going to, from what I heard from immediately after I left, I talked to some of the people for a little while. In fact, I hired one of my previous managers to take over my job when I left. And he's much more of the traditional test manager, which I thought would be good for that org, but maybe it wasn't because he was all too happy to drop back to shipping once a month and doing a full test pass with even an even bigger team of offshore testers in India. And I think a lot of those things just trying, there was still trying when I left, or at least in that first six months after I left, they were still trying to test quality in via outsourced team. And I just don't think that's a good recipe for long-term quality success. So that's where I think happened there, but I didn't even make fun of team as much as I want, except for the fact that I can tell you that it, at least they have a Linux client now, which I have, have installed and uninstalled occasionally when I have to do a Teams meeting. But honestly, Zoom and Slack, I have to say, whether I worked on Teams before or not, I love so much more. Um, I would say Teams is, to its credit, Teams being part of Office 365 is genius because it's the collaboration app for companies that don't know the need a collaboration app. Nobody's switching from Slack to Teams, or at least willingly. But teams that don't use a collaboration app, they can they'll use Teams and it's it's kind of okay. It's not great. There are some bugs. And not to say Zoom doesn't have bugs and Slack doesn't have bugs. These things all have bugs. And I'm not going to go list them all out and see which one is buggier. But for me, the Zoom Slack combination has been pretty awesome. So anyway, that that's the story of why I think quality. Remember, do you ever work with Ronnie Kohavi? Yeah. So he has that term. He came up with the term. He coined the term, the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. And you want to avoid right. that and be data driven. This team very much, and they have a new VP in place since I, since in the last year or so, but teams was very much at the, every feature, every decision was at the whim of the VP running the org. And I think that's what led to, the quality where it was. The story I think you just told, I mean, it happened. Uh, there were there were some things that, that I'm not going to talk about on the podcast that I think were unique to your situation. But in general, I think 80 to 90 percent of your situation was essentially a team in transformation. Right. It's essentially you had. You had a, a lot of old schoolers. Uh, in the business leadership, folks that would say, hey, I've been shipping product for 20 years. I know how to do it, blah, blah, blah. Okay. At the same time, you had those folks building a what is essentially a service and not really adapting well. And what happened in, in this particular case, I think your story is is, is one around how agile transformations um, can go wrong, right? Uh, so 
I have a, I've talked about it on the podcast as well. You and I had different experiences in being the in the Xbox org, right? Right. Um, my experience on the Xbox org, uh, I will I'll just quite honestly say, very very aligned with the story you just told, right? Uh, they were not an agile team; they were a fragile team, and they. And it was during that period of time in Microsoft where they were, where uh, again, agile principles were being weaponized instead of being used for the, the, the benefit of the customer. And there weren't a whole lot of people that really understood how to do it. Even me at that point in time, like I left Xbox to, to go to Bing at that point in time because they were a service and I went to Bing to learn how to do this. Right. And, and I did. And, and I don't know too much about the internal structure. I have a few contacts in, in teams. I don't talk to them all that often. But to me, I, I think actually the story to tell there, right, the difference between Zoom and, and Slack and Teams might very well be, I'll, I'll frame it as a hypothesis, might very well be, you know, how long it took Teams to, to realize that they needed to shift to, a, to some form of CICD model. Yeah, I don't know if they're there yet. I don't. I. I would uh, hope so, but I don't know. It doesn't matter. I have some evidence that they might be, but I can't say one way or the other. I, I don't actually know. But Again. this is Teams is where I learned how to do safe deployments. I mean, we we would do originally. When I got there. We had a both a a, a dev environment and a test environment and the regular environment, the typical environments you'd have. And the dev environment was always crappy. And I remember, this is funny, it's reminding me. I remember that nobody on team, this is before we ship, but nobody used the prod. Everyone used dev to go, oh, I have to use dev to only get the new features. I thought, oh God, this is bad. But eventually we had one environment with, uh, with ring deployment. So we... When we did our weekly release, we always like released on Friday, but we did the snapshot on Monday and that snapshot on Monday immediately went to prod, but that version was only available for first my team. And then we roll it out to usually if it passed initial sort of smoke testing, we go to all of the Microsoft teams team and then to all of Microsoft. And then eventually on Friday, we release it to customers. Which was, you know, my first experience doing that kind of staged rollout, which was really a powerful way to do that. And that was fun and I loved it, but hopefully that got even faster. But I, I totally forgot that. Yeah. And I, I went back and looked back in time. The one thing I'll say is to the best of my knowledge, Teams was the first time where you were taking a very direct hand in trying to shift a waterfall team to, to an agile team. Right. I, yeah, it I think was worse. It was a, it was a, ag, it was a waterfall team who thought they were agile. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, I'll go back to that's exactly my experience of Xbox and, and for the listeners, like I left before Alan joined and, do, and he do we have a, any overlap at all there. I don't think so. I don't when think did you, do you remember when you left? LinkedIn would show it. I don't, All right. I'm I don't not going to go look at LinkedIn. So I remember I joined Xbox on Halloween in 2013. Yeah, I was in Bing. So I think there was a gap of months uh, there. Oh. So no, no overlap. 
because I, I I joined Bing in, in pretty certain 2012. I either joined Bing in 2012 or I left Bing in 2012. I don't remember. The, the point of the story, I think, here, and if I go back in time as well, I went back in, into our podcast and, and looked for what was the date uh, of the episode titled The Conception of Modern Testing. Right, that was in 2018, which I believe you were already in Unity. Oh yeah, it. yeah, for sure. I was well, and, but right, yeah, we've been talking so, about. We just didn't have a name for it. Maybe we've been talking about modern testing for a long time. Right, like but, since uh, the beginning. Right. The, the my point is, in terms of hey, Alan did this. You know, Alan keeps talking about all these principles and all these things. So how come Teams is all screwed up? The, the one thing I'll, I'll say on that front is you don't learn from success. True. You only learn from failure. And what I will say is a lot of Alan's, Alan and I have never had this discussion, but I am so confident in what I'm about to say, I'm going to say it anyway. You're wrong. A lot of Alan's thought process around supportive of modern testing when he was thinking through it, he absolutely was considering what he views as personal failures from his experience with teams. Right. Yeah, I agree. And there's, there's two things maybe to highlight there. One is that definitely the modern testing principles were nowhere near being formed at that point. It took me going back to managing a test team for a while at unity to kind of think through that as well as, building that quality culture transition guide at Unity with reflection on time I had spent on Xbox and on Teams doing coaching. Yeah, those ideas came primarily, like even when I joined Unity back in a, a test manager role, it made me go back and think about what actually mattered and how testers should work. That's when I began to think about using, uh, when you have dedicated testers, using them to accelerate uh, accelerate the achievement of quality or mm -hmm. to accelerate the team versus be a bottleneck and then building that quality culture. And then, and then maybe that last principle came from my time at unity. When you have dedicated testers, you can use them to help expand the testing abilities and know how across the org. And all that came from a lot of reflection. And in fact, when I first gave the talk in 2017, let me think. Whenever I gave that talk at Test Bash in Brighton, the first time I gave a public talk about modern testing, it started with the history, like all the things I had learned from Xbox and then from Teams and then from Unity and how those all came together into the principles. So back on Teams, uh, I had a lot of good ideas. I learned how coaching worked. I learned how to teach. I, I began to realize that, yes, developers can be very, very good testers, but my full thoughts on how to achieve quality even though I gave a talk on testing without testers, my full thoughts on how to achieve quality without dedicated testing specialists didn't fully come to fruition for a few years after that, based on what uh, I learned there. And, and both you and I have multiple different experiences around attempting the principles, trying things out and going, whoa, that didn't work. That, 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 that not only didn't work, like one of the things I think we've talked about in the past in my view, agile principles will far outproduce, it not only means slightly, it will far outproduce waterfall-based mentality. Okay, it, far. But the one 
thing that is the Achilles heel to Agile? Uh, do you want to make a, a singular guess before I drop the bomb? Nope, go ahead. The Achilles heel to Agile is command and control. Absolutely. Right. There is the, I have yet to find anything uh, with with Agile that that uh, successfully survives a hierarchical structure where the hierarchy is is against it, right? Or 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 even at, uh, either against it directly or indirectly. Even micromanagement, right? Instead of using quantification or other other means, uh, customer usage to to sort of drive decision making. So that's something that I, th- I think is is um, it's it's actually one of the reasons why. You make fun of me all the time on this one, but it's one of the reasons why I actually still do favor the safe uh, methods because safe actually tries to make the management part of the agile process instead of say scrum. Uh, That's another conversation on their Slack channel right now around sort of the failings of scrum and scrum Scrum has had this sort of history of, of enforced autonomy. Management's the man and Scrum is anti the man, right? And I think that actually holds it down and, or, or holds it back and creates limits. Yeah. But that's my philosophy. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Okay, so that's kind of the story. You know, we can go deeper if there are more questions, but that was way easier to talk about it here because I think it's interesting to everybody else. And I, I, like, I like where we got with that then trying to type mm-hmm. up an answer in Slack. Again, if you want to see these Slack conversations or ask your own questions in Slack, you can go to moderntesting.org and join our Slack group. There is no cost for that. It is absolutely free. Um, of course, you get what you pay for, which is me and Brent being smart asses in Slack, but it's fun. We have yeah, we then, have, we have taco emojis that we give away. Yeah, one, uh, one additional thing that, I, that I, I at least want to say is, uh, despite what you feel about teams, I will say teams has actually been an important asset to the globe uh, during the pandemic times. I I, I totally agree. And I think it goes back to the fact that the vast majority of people who are using Office 365 or Office subscriptions to their enterprise, they're not using any other collaboration tool. And it it just gives it to them in a way that's comfortable and that integrates with the way they work. And then one thing uh, worth sharing, and so I, I totally get that, but um, I'll mention a name, the old VP, he really wanted to compete with Slack. I want to take out Slack. And and Stuart Butterfield was worried for a while. He's put out that, that full page ad the day Teams came out, which was kind of cool. But it says, welcome to the, welcome to the game. But uh, it really fits the niche because those Office 365 companies that use that, and there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users in, in that camp, they're not going out and getting Slack licenses. They they just get teams as part of the package they already have. It's very convenient. It works very well. I'm all it, it fits there very well. Something else I was going to say there, but I forgot. And we're out of time anyway. All right. Okay, everybody. Thanks for being part of our podcast today. Uh, all three of you, you and you and you. I'll see you next time. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.